Yeah, yeah, I, I noticed oh. you usually. Okay, cool. We're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is John Klyzek. His last name is spelled K-L-Y-C-Z-E-K, and he published a book back in 2019. Title, full title of the book is School World Order, The Technocratic Globalization of Corporatized Education. I think it's a very important book, and I'm glad he reached out to me. I was reading through a lot of it today, and some nefarious characters uh, kept popping up over and over. And it's kind of shocking to see how much a lot of cor corporate, very wealthy people are involved in American education. And I, I think that putting their, them putting their hands on this is pretty incredible. And I think it's an incredible book. So people check that out. John Klyzek has an MA in English and has taught college rhetoric and research argumentation for over seven years. His literary scholarship content concentrates on the history of global eugenics and Aldous Huxley's dystopic noble, Brave New World. He's a contributor to the Intrepid Report, The Dissident Voice, Op-Ed News, News with Views, and Natural News. He is also the director of writing and editing at Black Freighter Productions Books. In addition, Klyzek holds a black belt in classical Taekwondo, and he is a certified kickboxing, inst kickboxing instructor under the International Muay Thai Boxing Association. And he has a lot of very personal connections to, I think, very important people. We were talking, chatting in the pre-show, probably a little too long, but uh, he can share that too. So, John Klyzek, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, William. Awesome. So for people, I mean, maybe you can add to your background, but just talk about your background, what led you to write this book and some of the interesting people that you met uh, along the way when you wrote it. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so the book sort of started as an article. So I am an educator. I uh, teach at various community colleges. I'm an adjunct, which sometimes they call us freeway flyers because, you know, with Obamacare, they sort of cap how many classes you can teach. So, you know, you're sort of jumping around to whatever college is going to offer you a class for that semester. Um, and because I was an educator, or I am an educator, I, you know, never really planned to write necessarily about education, kind of wanted to keep a little buffer between, you know, myself and my workspace. But uh, during the uh, time of Bruce Rauner, when he was the governor of Illinois, uh, we went through a budgetary crisis where he was basically stalling on passing the budget. And I saw this as basically a ploy to uh, privatize uh, public services, including public education. And at the same time, I, I noticed that, you know, Rauner was big into charter schools. Actually, there's actually a Rauner College Prep charter school. Uh, and when he would do his state of the state addresses, he would push these, these slogans like cradle to career, which is this idea about uh, changing academics to workforce training. Um, there was a big move for something called uh, P20 councils, which are basically institutions that facilitate public-private partnerships between education, healthcare, criminal justice agencies. Um, and I, I had also been um, working for a, a private tutoring company at the time that was online. And this particular company was wanting to pilot IBM's Watson, which is their artificial intelligence, to sort of data mine what we were doing in order to develop AI that could sort of tutor on its own. So uh, while I'm sort of watching uh, our funds dry up and my department eventually got shut down, I decided, well, you know, this is probably a good time to maybe write, write about this or, or say something. And, you know, everything that I just mentioned, so the changing from academics to workforce training, the school choice movement, which is just a euphemism for privatizing education through public-private partnerships, um, and then also the ed tech agenda. This was all stuff that I'd heard Charlotte Iserby talk about for many years, and it's thoroughly documented in her book, The Deliberate Dumbing Down of America, both the, the full version and the abridged version. And so, you know, I, I wrote this first piece. Um, it's called The Corporatization of Education. And I sort of looked into the background on Rauner, his connections to Arne Duncan, who was the uh, Secretary of Education at one point, but he was also the CEO of Chicago Public School Systems. And, and these are uh, Republicans and Democrats, right? These are both parties. Yeah, 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 right. And actually, some of the people that supported Rauner at the time, um, there was, oh, I always get him mixed up with Cory Brooks. I think it's Cory Booker. Um, and he, he was a um, sort of a left-wing guy here. Uh, and also, 
Oh, it's escaping my my uh, my memory right now. But if you if you read the first chapter of the book, it's in there. But these were a couple other Democrats who supported him, um, and you know he gave them some cush positions in the in the state government as a as a result. I think one of them was the head of the tollway system in in Illinois. Um, and so you know, upon writing that piece, I focused largely on the the corporatization aspect. Um, didn't really get into the technology stuff quite yet, but. Uh, I, Charlotte Isserby wrote me an email um, because I started the first article, which became the first chapter of the book. I wasn't intending to make it a book quite yet. Uh, and I got this email from her that said, thank you so much. And first I'm thinking, well, this has got to be a virus or a troll or something like, you know, but it was her. Um, and, you know, we sort of kicked it off. Um, you know, she encouraged me to just, you know, keep doing what you're doing, keep writing. And so since, you know, I saw these other these other aspects, including, you know, the workforce training, what they also call school to work, and then the whole education technology or otherwise known as the ed tech agenda, I figured, well, I could make a, at least a series of articles. And maybe, you know, if she, if she can give me a little extra support here, maybe I can turn this thing into a book. So I so I went down that path and, uh, you know, she, for people that don't know, um, she was also, her, her father and grandfather were members of the Order of Skull and Bones. And it just happened to be that um, at this time, um, I was picked up, I, I found in a used bookstore, Anthony Sutton's uh, introduction to the Order of Skull and Bones, America's Secret Establishment. And um, funny enough, I didn't, I didn't know that she was the one who had leaked him the Skull and Bones address book. So, so I'm sort of... I, the same time that I'm deciding to start writing about this, like I, this book sort of fell in my lap and I'm realizing that there's a skull and bones connection here. And um, so, so I started to, to weave into to the argument of this whole corporate workforce training ed tech agenda, how the, the order of skull and bones has been instrumental in, in pushing all of these various transformations in, in public education. Um, and so she, she, Put me in touch with my publisher, Chris Milligan at Trying Day Books. And Chris Milligan actually is the man who republished Sutton's uh, introduction to the Order of Skull and Bones after it went out of print. And so, um, you know, I was, my, my book in, in many ways is the historical heir, you know, both to Sutton's work and Israbeats, not just in terms of the content and the research, but, you know, I, I, I ended up spending uh, during COVID, I, I uh, you know, the lockdowns, I just, I took my online teaching with me and uh, I, I spent a lot of time with Charlotte. I probably made six trips up to Maine and one of them, I spent a whole month there and, you know, helped out around the house and stuff. Um, she recently passed away this year. Um, and over the course of my, my visits, one of the things that I helped out with was like, she had a big barn and I helped clean out this barn and in the barn was, uh, well, 13 cabinets, 34 different drawers, legal sized files. Took me a hundred hours, so 10, 10 hour days to, to dig everything out. And by dig everything out, I didn't just grab it. You know, I went through because a lot of the stuff was sort of duplicated. She, her filing system was such, they were like citations. So she would, she would have one document in multiple files to sort of illustrate how these different documents were connected. But she let me take all this stuff home and you can actually uh, access these files on my database, which I update every week, uh, every Thursday. Um, and before she passed, um, she, she ended up giving me basically all the books she had. And it's about a thousand books, um, including the address book. So I have the physical copies of the address books and you can actually see those at my, my database. Um, right, and, so and, she you know, leaked the 1925 address and names of the School and Bones members, right? Yeah, there's there's three address books that she had. Uh, so one is um, 1977, uh, and then there's well, actually it's two because the two out of the three are actually they broke the catalogs into living members and and uh, deceased members. So th that one I believe is 1983. So technically it's two catalogs, just one of them is, is separated. It's bound into two separate separate copies. Yeah. And and so that that, you know, they're they're giving you the membership list starting, you know, whatever, 1832 all the way to 1983 in the in the older version. Wow. Or the newer version. Yeah, and then right. I might add too, I also went up and visited with uh, my publisher, uh, Chris Milligan last summer. 
Um, and he had a he had a small filing cabinet with a lot of Sutton's research. Um, his uh, what is it? The report on the abuse of power, which was a newsletter he had. I, I scanned pretty much all of those um, and various other um, files that he had on technology. His background was actually in engineering. He was a production. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I always thought of him as a as a um, either a historian or an economist or or, or a historian of economics. Um, and actually, no, he was a, a production engineer, and, and Chris actually has his uh, his dissertation, um, which I got to sort of take a look at. Um, it was, you know, very impressive to see the type of work that went into it, especially during, you know, I believe, I, I think he published his dissertation in the 1960s. You know, this is before digital computers, you know, right. and, 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 you know, and so, like, he had all these graphs and charts that, you know, you make bar graphs out of little ticker tape and stuff, you know, I mean, so just the meticulous nature uh, of his research. But so what he focused a lot on was not just the history. He, he focused on the history of the Order of Skull and Bones because uh, for people that don't know, he worked for the, the Hoover Institute at Stanford and he wrote a series. It's uh, Western Technology and Soviet Economic Development. There's three volumes to it. And basically what he uncovered was that the United States was instrumental in financing the Soviet Union during a time throughout the Cold War when uh, effectively they would not have become the formidable opponents that they became had they not had the economic aid of uh, a lot of the Wall Street uh, bigwigs. Wall Street and, and the Russian Revolution is the name of that book, yeah. Oh yeah, that's another one. That's so. That's what he did later on. Um, uh, but the, the three volume series, um, I've got two out of the three. The third volume, if you want to get it, you can find a used copy. The cheapest you're going to find, I think, is either seven hundred or over a thousand dollars. And that's the one that he went and published on his own because uh, the the people at the Hoover Institute, you know, the, what they said was the quote is Anthony, don't break your rice bowl, meaning don't. If you publish this, right, this is this is taboo for academia, and you're you're going to basically ruin your academic career. And the Hoover and, Institution is a very legit scholarly institute. I think they had like uh, one of the former prime ministers of Russia ended up there. Like they will take people from all over the world. So just the fact that Sutton was able to be associated with the Hoover Institution is, is something. He was not. He was a very legitimate scholar even though he wrote on topics that people like it's kind of hidden history or it's hidden away history yeah yeah and he, he sort of made that decision to kind of go into like crypto politics because of what happened as a result of his decision to to republish uh, to, to publish that that third uh volume basically you know his investigation was sort of to figure out who, who did who did i upset right like who who are the people being behind the curtain that are telling you know the people who hired me to write this book that i shouldn't be able to publish it and when he finally got uh his hands on the uh address books that charlotte leaked to him um he, he said it clicked for him because a lot of the the financiers that he that he came across in his research in that three volume series were members of the order of skull and bones. And so he, you know, he sort of has this aha moment. Um, and as you mentioned, right, then he goes on to write wall street in the Bolshevik revolution. I have a copy of that as well. Uh, and then he also has wall street and the rise of Hitler, because what he also discovered was that they also financed uh, the Nazi regime through uh, particularly through Union Banking Corporation and three bonesmen by the name of Prescott Bush, who's the uh, father of George H.W. and the grandfather of George W. Uh, also along uh, that helped out with that was um, E. Roland Harriman. He's, he's a bonesman. And then another bonesman named Mike Woolley. Uh, and in particular, they through Union Banking Corporation, they were they were financing uh, funneling money through uh, Fritz Tyson, who was part of the Nazi party. And so basically what what uh, what Sutton sort of uh, surmised from this was that uh, also knowing the history of Skull and Bones, tracing its philosophical roots back to uh, Georg uh, Hegel, uh, they were deeply steeped in Hegelianism. And the crux of Hegelian philosophy is the Hegelian dialectic, which is thesis, antithesis, synthesis. So basically um, through the history evolves through these opposing ideas, okay? And through these opposing ideas, eventually comes the, the conflict, you create a synthesis, right? Some, some middle ground. 
and this is this is actually where we get the term evolution. That's that's Hegel's term. It's it's not actually Darwin. Darwin was basically mm -hmm. just a biological Hegelian. Marx was a uh, was a was a materialist or 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 an economic Hegelian. And I know you're a lawyer. You know, actually, modern case law is basically Hegelian, right? So instead of having having the principles rooted in natural law, it's the dialectic of the various case laws that right, evolve and de determine what should be our our, our public code. Um, and so basically what, what Sutton sort of surmised uh, from, from their financing of both sides of, of, the, uh, of World War II, you know, financing both communism and fascism was that right, by financing both sides, you could sort of steer the conflict, you could hedge your bets on either side, and then out of it, you would get a more unified global order. Uh, and obviously, at the end of, of World War II, we get, you know, the, the United Nations and very other, you know, what we could call global governance institutions. Right. UNESCO, which you mentioned in this uh, in this book, too. But the Bonesman ideology has been influencing education from from very, very early. Actually, in the law, too. You actually mentioned the guy who came up with a corporation. I forgot his name. Was, I think uh, it's the last name is Wait. I can't. Wait. Yeah. yeah a lot of people name. don't know that that guy was a bonesman. Like he created the whole corporate infrastructure of the United States. Right. You have him to thank for the idea that uh, corporations are are people. Right. Yeah. 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 And actually, you know, Sutton his the first chapter of uh, his, his book uh, America's Secret Establishment. Um, the first chapter is how the order controls education. And he told Charlotte that that was he thought that was the most important out of, out of all of the chapters. They were originally memorandums, so he wrote these these memorandums and he published them separately. I actually have one of the original memorandums right here. Um, but then he sort of wove them together into the tapestry of his book. And uh, what he discovered uh, was that not um, through through various bonesmen, uh, they set up the compulsory education system through uh in particular alfonso taft and he actually helped establish uh the order of skull and bones with william huntington russell uh and at antioch college it was with the help of uh, alfonso taft that horace mann uh gets promoted and he basically becomes the the founding father of compulsory public education in the United States. Later on, you get the importation of Hegelian philosophy through bonesmen like Daniel Coit Gilman, Andrew Dixon White, and Timothy Dwight, who are known as the Troika. Uh, but what they also did was they uh, tied Hegelian philosophy with uh, Wundtian stimulus response psychology. So Wilhelm Wundt, uh, he, he created modern psychology as a laboratory science. So prior to this, it was basically a subdiscipline of philosophy. And at Leipzig uh, University in Germany, Wilhelm Wundt basically comes up with this idea that all learning happens through what he calls the stimulus response method. And so that means that all learning is a basically a behavioral or a cognitive behavioral response to environmental stimuli. And this is also this is effectively the basis for what becomes known as classical conditioning. The best known example is like Pavlov's dog. Okay, uh, early on it was, it was purely associative, right? So the idea of just getting the mind or the behaviors to associate certain stimuli with certain outcomes. So you know you can take a natural stimulus, as in the instance of Pavlov's dog. You take food, the natural as a natural stimulus, the natural response is to salivate. If you associate the natural stimulus with an artificial stimulus, such as a bell, then you can associate the food with the bell. And by extension, you can associate the salivation with the bell. Eventually, you can remove the food and you can condition the, the dog to salivate just at the sound of the bell. So over a series of you know developments in psychology, you, get, you go from classical conditioning to what's known as behaviorism, so basically, they just start to look at um, punishment and reward cycles and how to use punishment and rewards uh, to, to create uh, routines that would help to refine the associative uh, stimulus response conditioning. And then eventually you get down to operant conditioning and operant conditioning. The idea here is so B.F. Skinner is the founding father of operant conditioning, basically just adds four quadrants or technically adds two quadrants to the to the uh, punishment and reward 
And so you have positive and negative punishment, positive, negative reward. The positive and negative just refers to are you adding a stimulus or are you removing a stimulus in order to elicit the particular response? But he wanted to see how you could uh, elicit the responses in an operative form, meaning you want the, the response to, to be the performance of a particular behavior. And so he was he liked to, you know, have pigeons and, and, and cats and things sort of, you know, the pigeon would peck at a, a, a button in, in association with a light and right to get food. And so it would only, it could only get the food when, when the light was, was on. Right. So if he, so he had to learn that he couldn't just peck this thing at any time, but if he pecked it when the light was on, he would get a food. Uh, and basically that becomes the modern teaching machine. Now I should, I should mention here that, um, you know, the development of, stimulus response conditioning into behaviorism into operant conditioning is heavily financed by uh, the Rockefeller General Education Board. Okay. And this was the first philanthropy uh, of the Rockefeller family. And actually you have to put philanthropy in quotes, you know, whenever it's, whenever it's Gates or Rockefeller, uh, there might be some other hidden sinister motives too, I would say. Yeah, yeah I, you're I, right. No, it's philanthropy. Yeah, no, I mean, a better term is just tax exempt corporation, right? I mean, because it's because at one level, you're basically it's basically <laughs> to first of all, you can you get to take a bunch of your profit and put it into a, a trust that's not taxable, okay? And then at the same time, though, you can use that 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 tax exempt foundation to basically engineer society. To reinforce the markets you're already dominating, so then, so effectively, right? You're you're using the, you're taking this tax-free money and you're using it, you're leveraging it to basically increase your effective monopoly over over the right. economy, right? Over yeah. all parts of the economy, even into education, which is really terrifying. Yeah, yeah, and and so uh, one of the one of the board members of the General Education Board was, in fact, Daniel Coit Gilman, and we should also mention that. Um, the Rockefeller family is itself a Skull and Bones family. The, the Percy Rockefeller was a member of Skull and Bones. Okay, and if we uh, if we move down history a little bit, you know, some of that GEB money and other Rockefeller philanthropies, uh, they would go to Columbia University, and that's where E.L. Thorndike was there, and he sort of uh, him he, he sort of piggybacked on uh, John B. Watson's ideas about behaviorism. John B. Watson. Uh, was the guy that did the little Albert experiments. He's one of the first people to apply the behavioral conditioning to, to humans. And basically what he wanted to figure out was, could you, uh, could you condition this child to be scared of rabbits? Okay. And so they would take this rabbit out and they'd put it in front of this little Albert baby. And then they would make a really loud noise. They would bang a hammer or something to startle the child. And eventually he associated that startling noise with the rabbit. So eventually you could bring the rabbit out and you would be scared of the rabbit. And the conditioning was so deep that eventually anything that was white and furry, he would be scared of. And you could even just put on a rabbit mask and he would be scared of it. Okay. And this is sort of the beginning of, of um, you know, moving from just conditioning animals to, to conditioning people. So uh, E.L. Thorndike, you know, is in the school of behaviorism and he comes up with what are called puzzle box experiments. And this is just, you know, the, the beginnings of, you know, sort of putting a rat in a maze and seeing how you can condition the, the, the behavior. Uh, B.F. Skinner takes off with it and he calls a, he moves from what he calls the, the puzzle box experiments to what he calls his Skinner box experiments. And the Skinner box eventually becomes the modern teaching machine okay and so there's a book it's the technology of teaching it's 1960 ish and uh it was financed by uh dean of harvard graduate school at the time bonesman mcgeorge bundy okay wow. uh in fact uh mcgeorge bundy um he was also president of the ford foundation which was also involved in the financing of the technology of teaching uh that book by bf skinner uh, and while he, while McGeorge Bundy was the president at the Ford Foundation, the vice president of the Ford Foundation was actually another bonesman by the name of Harold Howe II. And Harold Howe II was himself a commissioner of education, I want to say either late 50s, early 60s. Okay. Um, and so in the technology of teaching, it, it's not just B.F. Skinner's theories on how to create what is known as programmed learning or programmed instruction. But it, he actually had prototypes of the early teaching machines. And if you go to Smithsonian website, you can see some early pictures of the, of the teaching machines. And 
uh, early on, they were all analog. Okay. And they were basically like, I, I use the, the analogy of like the old Viewmasters. If you're young enough to remember the Viewmasters was these goggles that when you were a kid, they had like Disney pictures and you, there's a wheel with all the pictures and you have this gear and it moves it. Okay. In, in the teaching machine, it sort of had that card and there's two slots and one of it has the learning stimuli, which is going to be, you know, there it is. That's good. That's a good version of it. So it's going to be question, answer, uh, you know, multiple choice, matching, short response, et cetera. Uh, and then the other slot is where you're going to scribe your answer. And then it, you can only turn it one way. You can't go backwards. Uh, and then as you, the first turn on it is going to give you the answer right away. So it's, it's automated in the sense that it gives you an immediate response. You don't have to do your homework, turn into the teacher, wait for the teacher to grade it and respond. And eventually when you get to the end there, it's going to total up your score. And, uh, you know, and then, then the teacher might, you know, decide, do, are you ready? If you do really well and you do it really fast, the teacher might put a more advanced card in there. Uh, if you don't do so well, or you take too long, they might remediate you. They might give you a, a similar card with you know, different questions, but, you know, same level of difficulty, same concepts. Okay. And this is also what becomes known as individualized or personalized instruction because the student can take his or her own time and he gets an automated response. Uh, and therefore, you know, it's, theoretically more efficient than one teacher trying to go across 30 different students and give them all equal attention, which obviously, right, is impossible. You can't be interacting with each student one-on-one -on -one at the same time. So eventually, you know, they move on to the IBM punch card system and then, you know, moving into early uh, elect electronics. And then, um, you know, there's actually a, a document that Charlotte gave me. It's called uh, Teaching Machines and Programmed Learning or Teaching Machines and Programmed Instruction. I always mix it up. It's on my right. website. And this um, punch card isn't much different than like the modern Scantron, is it? No, not, not at all. It's just in, instead of filling in with the lead, they'd have you punch a hole in it. And then as you feed it through the machine, where when the light goes through the hole, that sets off a sensor. Uh, and, and then basically it reads that. So it's, it's effectively the same concept. It's just one's filling it in with number two pencil lead and the other one has a hole in it, right? And, um, and, and so eventually here, um, the, the, the teaching machines uh, get financed by uh, Department of the Army, Department of the Navy, Department of the Air Force. Uh, and some of the early uh, iterations of those teaching machines were developed by IBM, okay? And IBM later goes on to develop, uh, as I mentioned, Watson's artificial intelligence, Watson AI. Now, it's worth noting here that uh, Watson is named after Thomas J. Watson. Thomas J. Watson was the head of IBM at a time when during World War II, uh, they were doing business with Hitler and they were sending over the punch card system to process the concentration camp data. And what a lot of people know don't know is that it's not uh, that data wasn't just you know um, to sort of you know sort of uh, keep keep a census of you know who came in and out and you know how long they you worked them for until until they euthanized them or whatever. Uh, but they also did eugenic experiments on the people. Okay, and so the uh, Thomas the, Watson is a notorious eugenicist. He's yeah. a, he was a total racist. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, interestingly enough, you know, so uh, one of the one of the PhDs uh, under Wilhelm Wundt was a guy by the name of James McKean Cattell. James McKean Cattell was the guy that hired um, E.L. Thorndike. And James McKean Cattell, he wanted to combine Wundtian stimulus response psychology with Galton's theories about biological inheritance. So this is where you get into biopsychology. And so it's sort of the merger. You know, a lot of times people think of historically in academia bi biological sciences and psychological sciences have sort of been separated right and so you think of them as nature versus nurture as law usually the paradigm or historically been the paradigm um but you know moving into the to the realm of modern neuro neurology and you know the development of what what are brain computer interfaces you're basically just you're merging the um the biological and the psychological conditioning and so um, actually, you know, there's, there's two to sort of illustrate that. I mean, this was always sort of the, the case with eugenics is that um, you had what Hitler called race hygiene. Okay. And so he was very focused on, he wanted his eugenic sterilization, euthanasia campaigns to be focused on 
your your ethnic heritage, right? So were you were you Jewish or you know were you a black or brown, etc. Uh, and that sort of determined whether or not you were you, you were so-called unfit. Um, but then there was another sort of uh, offshoot that was known as mental hygiene. And so whether or not, it didn't matter what your ethnic heritage was, if you had an IQ score that wasn't high enough, that could that, that could put you on the slate for forced sterilization. And, and, and this was rampant across the United States. Actually, a lot of people don't know the first, the world's first compulsory sterilization law was was in Indiana, I want to say 1907 or 1904. I think it's 1907. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, when you when you hear terms like idiot, imbecile, moron, those were actually like so-called scientific terms that referred to specific scores on your IQ test, right? And so each one was a standard deviation below the average mean of 100. So if you're 90, 80, 70, et cetera, right, that would be idiot, imbecile, moron, et cetera, okay? And so uh, basically this this later becomes what becomes known, uh, there's, a, there's a burgeoning field called precision education. And so uh, it sort of comes out of the history of, the, of Charles Murray's bell curve um, and so if you've ever, if you've ever taken a look at that and you just look at, just look at the, if you've, if you've done your research on the history of, um, sort of, sort of IQ science, the Simons-Binet IQ tests, and you look at like which ethnic group did they correlate these particular IQ scores with statistically, like they're pretty much identical to what Charles Murray pushes. And if you look at his, um, just look at his end notes, there's big, big chunks where you can see the bulk of his citations come from people who were avid eugenicists, either crypto eugenicists or, or explicitly eugenicists, right? And so some of these would be Arthur Jensen, Richard Lynn, uh, Felipe J. Rushton, uh, William Shockley, uh, Linda Gottfriedson. And, and these people were, a lot of them were affiliated with something called the Pioneer Fund, which was basically like a white supremacist think tank, okay? And they did actually emphasize um, the ethnic correlations to what they would call the mental hygiene IQ scores. Um, but they did, um, you look at- you There want was, to sorry to interrupt, but there was an academic who took those guys apart. I can't remember his name offhand, but he went after Shockley. And there was one other guy too. I don't know if you mentioned his name. But there's another guy, a pre-Murray person, but I, uh, I can't remember the name of that academic. But yeah, I'm thinking the book might one of the books from one of those guys, and the author escapes me as well. Might be not in our genes, and uh, I think Stephen Jay Gould maybe might be one of them as well. Yeah, I think he I think he took uh, took issue with that. Um, but yeah, but but you know, moving forward today, uh, there's sort of a push to kind of. Uh, Sort of bring it, bring it back, and you know, it's it's interesting to note here that uh, uh, Charles Murray is a Bilderberg Group member. Okay, he's been at the Bilderberg me uh, meetings, and um, he's also a big pusher for um, online learning, and specifically online learning for people that he says genetically, in terms of their genetic IQ scores, are not fit for higher learning, academia, uh, you know, to be sort of, uh, you know. Uh, taught or, or, or trained, or I guess conditioned, um, you know, for roles of, you know, uh, entrepreneurship or, you know, uh, government, you know, policymaking, et cetera. Um, and so this, this, this new, this new movement is called precision education. And it's actually one of the main proponents of it is a guy by the name of Robert Plowman, who is also cited in, uh, Charles Murray's, um, uh, bell, bell curve. Okay, and, and this guy, Robert Plowman, actually uses, he says he wants to have, quote, a learning chip that sort of keeps records of your, your genetic IQ propensity. I, now, when he says learning chip, I don't think it's basically like a brain-computer interface like uh, Elon Musk Neuralink or what, what else is being developed at Facebook. Um, but but it, it, appear, it, it sounds like it's just going to be some sort of a digital ID that sort of keeps track of your genetic IQ propensity. And then that's going to track you uh, into that's going to determine which modules you can use on your online learning. So uh, those teaching machines that I mentioned, those analog teaching machines, eventually they get developed into something called adaptive learning courseware. And some of the products for adaptive learning courseware are there's Dreambox, Brightspace Leap, uh, Newton, 
smart sparrow clever okay uh both clever and newton are funded by peter thiel who is also a, a member of the bilderberg group he was also a speechwriter for uh bill bennett who's the secretary of education under ronald reagan he actually took over from th bell who's the secretary of education when charlotte Isserby worked in the department of education at a time when she uh, when, when she leaked something called Project Best, and that's basic education skills through technology. And, and I have the full copy. It's on my website at the database. And what, what that shows uh, was basically the beginnings of everything that I've sort of laid out. So it was to set up public-private partnerships with education technology corporations in order to replace academics with workforce training that would be implemented through operating conditioning algorithms through through the Skinner box teaching machines okay and so basically uh, Bennett picks sort of picks up the mantle of that program he ends up setting up a virtual charter school corporation known as k-12 Inc it's actually one of the largest in the country I believe it was the very first virtual charter school and this was the place where the modern adaptive learning courseware, was first piloted. It was on these online virtual charter schools. Okay. And not only is the adaptive learning courseware, if you look at uh, Dreambox, if you go on Dreambox's website, they explicitly trace it back to the to the Skinner box teaching machine. But they also say that the the algorithms that they use to, as we said, personalize or individualize your learning, they're they are basically identical to the behavioral advertising algorithms that are used for like Netflix, right? And others, you know, this is similar uh, algorithms on social media. So anytime you get a personalized ad, it's that same sort of algorithm that's used in the in the adaptive learning course, where it's just instead of looking at what you want to purchase, it's looking at how how effectively and efficiently do you respond to the learning stimulus on the uh, on the teaching machines, so or on the adaptive learning courseware, and so. Uh, you know, to tie in this idea about precision education, basically what that would do is sort of cap you, cap you, uh, you know, in advance of actually getting on on the uh, the courseware, the the module. So in other words, if your IQ score is you know yay high, right? It's 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 low, it's too low. Uh, they're not even going to bother with having that thing, you know, programmed. Uh, for what they call career pathways. So depending on how you respond to the to the learning stimuli, right, it's going to track you either into a career pathway or right, if you're if you do well enough, maybe it'll put you in advanced placement and maybe you can go on to higher learning and get some scholarships and stuff, right? But but if your IQ score starts off low enough, right, we're gonna we're just gonna cap you at the the career pathways uh, in advance. And then that algorithm is sort of going to be uh, limited accordingly and so and so through both the the yeah, precision ed and uh basically the stimulus response operating conditioning method you have sort of a sort of a merger or a synthesis of the biological engineering and the psychological engineering through the uh, modern online learning systems it's it's crazy to think like that's where we're at you know all these things in these charter schools have taken off right but um it goes all the way through, and DeVos was a huge thing. I, I for, had forgot that it was Pence that actually decided that deciding vote to actually get her to become in the Department of Education. Like she's like a total fox in the hen house, man. Oh yeah, yeah. She she's um you know or was so she, I should say. Yeah, yeah. She she was heavily invested in charter schools. Okay, uh, in particular, she was invested in K twelve Inc. Okay, and she actually I had a FOIA request. Um, that shows on one of her tours across the country as Secretary of Ed, she met privately with Peter Thiel. Now we, we don't know what yeah. they talked about because you know just, the itinerator just said they met. I think it was either at his home or her home. I believe it was at his home. But I would surmise, I would imagine that, right, given the nature of her role as Secretary of Ed and given his his interest in his financing of adaptive learning courseware and also his uh, history of writing speeches for Bill Bennett that. Uh, you know, they probably talked about some way to, you know, further the whole uh, adaptive learning uh, agenda. Okay. But another thing that she's invested in um, was actually on the board of, uh, was a company called, uh, as a company called NeuroCore. Okay. And so this is where we get into another iteration of EdTech. And that is, uh, it's called social emotional learning. And largely what is used to track social emotional learning algorithms are, are what they call biofeedback wearables. 
Okay, so, so the adaptive learning courseware is going to data mine what's known as cognitive behavioral algorithms, in other words, thinking algorithms, okay? And the social-emotional learning algorithms are going to basically be um, data mining the students' feeling algorithms. So now you're going to have right a, a permanent uh, sort of psychological profile on each student in terms of what they think, how they behave, and how do they feel, okay? And NeuroCore had... Uh, <laughs> Oh, that's, that's like a hellscape. Like, oh, my God. Like, can yeah, you imagine yeah. the, the abuse of that data? I'm sure that they present it as always for the best of you. But if somebody back ends that or gets that data, it's incredible. Like, they could. Yeah. They could yeah. Take, I mean, so I, tinker with anybody. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, no. I mean, one, one of them. So one of the sort of <clears> the, the pitches for this is. One of the, one of the early pitches, uh, and you know, now that it's at least the adapt the adaptive learning courseware is 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 pretty. Uh, I don't want to say it's ubiquitous, but it's very common, right? Uh, the the biofeedback wearables not so much; they're sort of being pitched still. Um, but you know, sort of the the early pitches for for these technologies was basically how they would help uh, students with learning disabilities, right, or to students with you know like test anxiety, emotional difficulties, mental health issues, etc., right? And so, and same thing with brain computer interfaces, right? Elon Musk, Neuralink. The, the pitch for these is that they'll help people that you know have Parkinson's syndrome, you know, are, are paralyzed, uh, have epilepsy, okay? And then once it sort of gets normalized as this sort of what they call an assistive technology, then eventually, right? It's like, well, hey, you know, I mean. Why don't you use one too? You know, it wouldn't hurt to, you know, get, get some of your algorithms in here. We might be able to refine our, our lessons for you a little bit. Um, but there's, so, but DeVos's uh, NeuroCore, and by the way, the, so the, the links, the website, they changed the, the, um, uh, the URL. So, so the, the, the old URL for NeuroCore doesn't work anymore. Um, hmm. And so I don't, you know, I, mean, I don't know if they, uh, I, you know, I dug around and tried to find the new, uh, the new address. I don't. I don't know where that where that company's at in the mix right now. But it, but recently, I clicked on some of those links and they and they didn't work. Uh, but and by the way, my all all the citations in the book. Like, there's over a thousand of them. It's a hundred pages of citations. I have everyone that's that's online through a link that's that's still up. You can get on my website under my resources page under the bibliography page. Uh, but but what uh, what NeuroCore is is it's it's an EEG headband. Okay, so it's going to monitor uh, and data mine the students' uh, brain waves, basically. Okay, and based on the students' brain waves, they can infer their emotional, uh, psychological state, right? And so, basically, uh, does the student like the curriculum? Is he or she enjoying it? Uh, is he or she confused? Uh, are the students frustrated? Are they daydreaming? Uh, and based on that, right? You know, theoretically, you would you would tailor or refine the the lessons accordingly. Um, and, uh, so that's, that's one, that's one realm of the, the social emotional learning, although the, the acronym is cell, the cell biofeedback wearables, but they have a whole sort of a whole array. So they also have, um, heart monitors, uh, through like a company called HeartMath, which basically, you know, infers the same, uh, mental or, or emotional metrics, uh, but just using a different, uh, biofeedback algorithm. So looking at, right, how the students heart rate correlates with their brain waves. And then they also have galvanic skin response monitors. And there's companies like, so the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation financed those. There's a company called Effectiva that has financed those as well. Uh, and those those basically data mine uh, the student's skin conductivity. And uh, basically uh, the skin conductivity can give you a window into the other two metrics in terms of the intensity of the emotions that you can infer from the EEGs and the ECGs. It's just incredible. Like, just imagine like the capacity of Neuralink or NeuroCore to get that information from people. It's like 23andMe. Like, they imagine the data that they've compiled willingly from these people. Like, oh, you want to just do it? It's for my benefit to get this information. They could select all kinds of people. They could find, you know dupes it's like a farming operation for different uh characters and personalities and things like that like that's terrifying super terrifying yeah. and it like people need to disabuse themselves of like trump trump maga because devos is in there so is mnuchin you talk about mnuchin like a bonesman is still tinkering around right yeah 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 yeah, yeah. And one, one of the ways that i saw him as instrumental in the uh and in sort of the the 
the furthering of this whole ed tech AI agenda is that there was a, when they did the Trump uh, tax cuts and jobs act, uh, a lot of people referred to it as the tax tax cuts and robots acts, because there was a, there's a, I think it's called the full and immediate expensing clause in there. Okay. And basically what that enabled was, so typically uh, if you're a company and you buy some new equipment, as it depreciates over time, you can write off the depreciation, right, over time in increments, right? Uh, but with the full and immediate expensing clause, you could buy a, a new, uh, some new equipment, okay, some new technology. And at the end of the very first year that you bought it, you could write off all the depreciation. So you could basically get it for free, right? You could basically get, you know, all, if not most of your money back on it. Okay. And obviously, you know, what is going to be the most efficient use of new equipment in the 21st century? It's going to be stuff that automates your workforce or in the, in the case of schools, automates teaching, automates instruction, automates learning. And actually, um, during COVID, um, there was, uh, it's called, it was the, uh, distance learning and innovation rules. I think it's FR, 18638, I believe that should be, that should be the correct code, but you can, you can find the article on my, um, on my website. Okay. It's like COVID-19 CARES Act bankrolls AI, uh, in schools. Okay. Tell me your website URL. Oh, it's uh schoolworldorder.info. Okay. Um, and, and basically what that did was it, it sort of, you know, it sort of links up with this full median expensing clause, or at least, you know, the, adds extra incentive to sort of automate you know instruction uh because be before these new regulations um there in order so when you get credit at a at a school uh it needs to be what they call accredited at the state and then you know federal level uh, and you know at the college system in particular right you know if you want to transfer okay it has to meet these accreditation standards okay uh, and one of the things that you had to do to qualify the, this this course credit is uh, accredited was there had to be a certain amount of interaction between the teacher and the student, right? Human to human. Uh, but the the uh, the distance learning and innovation rules, what they what they basically allowed was uh, they made it they sort of redefined what that that interaction was, and they they opened it up for. Uh, they said, quote, adaptive learning. They used exactly the adaptive learning language. Um, and they literally you know, refer to adaptive learning as, quote, artificial intelligence. And basically what they're saying is that student interaction with an AI algorithm is on par with or can substitute human to human or teacher to student interaction, which right gives you incentive to, you know, buy, buy a bunch of ed tech stuff with your carers money nonetheless. Um, you know, because they gave out tons of CARES money and a lot of it had to be used for either for PPE or at the school level, um, you know, for, for technologies that could facilitate distance learning during lockdown. Um, and so, right, you take that money uh, and you can, you know, you can go ahead and write it, write it straight off. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I, I might mention, you know, you sort of, you sort of uh, surmise a little bit about like the implications of all this data. Well, you know, the, there's a there's a similar EEG headband used for uh, learning in China. It's called the Focus One headband. Okay, and it's it's in my book. Uh, if you if you want to see a creepy visual uh, uh, illustration of it, there's a video. It's on YouTube. So if you if you were to put in a search engine, Wall Street Journal, China Brain Co. Okay, there it's like eh, maybe eight minutes. Uh, and if you just watch like the first three four minutes, you'll see these kids with these focus one headbands on. And you'll also see uh, not just how, how all the students are having their, their brainwaves data monitored, oh, wow, right? There there right? Yeah. Not only will you see, uh, but you'll also see that the data goes to a dashboard at the, at the teacher's desk, but then it'll pan out and it'll show you how that data links up to the broader social credit system that is used to determine the students' entire lives, their access to the public square, commercial services, everything from, you know, healthcare, jobs, uh, education, housing, transportation, even due process, because you can be put on a blacklist, right, if you have, you know, wrong think, okay, or you, you know, you, you behaved 
inappropriately, right? And this, this stuff links up with, as you see, there are all the facial recognition cameras. So it's not just data mining what you're doing online, what you're doing with your ed tech, but it also data mines like, or did you jaywalk? Like, what are you doing in physical public space, right? Because yet social credit scores linked to your biometrics, you'll see there, they're interacting with robots, right? And so another thing that my, my book looks at is how that was one of those social, emotional, facial recognition algorithms uh, is that a lot of this data is being used to, to also engineer artificial intelligence. And by that, I, not just more sophisticated, um, you know, adaptive learning courseware and, and, and uh, biofeedback algorithms, but, you know, because those are all effectively, you know, limited versions of AI. But as you see in there, that sort of humanoid looking thing, right? They're, they want to use basically the thinking algorithms and the feeling algorithms to engineer what they call artificial general intelligence or AGI, which is basically uh, AI that can mimic uh, a human, right? So basically humanoid AI that can interact with a human being and sort of not just uh, identify and respond to uh, human emotions, but to, you know, uh, sort of exhibit them, right? And I don't, I don't believe that that means that the robot feels. I just, you know, it just means that it, it, it recognizes the patterns uh, and associates it with, you know, a, a various categories of emotion, and then can therefore, you know, with its humanoid sort of uh, exoskeleton, elicit maybe a smile or a confused look or something. But you know, and that's just and that's just to sort of, um, you know, more effectively interact with and condition the human. It's it's not, you know, I, I don't believe that it actually is going to be conscious or or have emotions in anything like we understand a human being to to have those things right i mean it's just so creepy it, it becomes like you're watching star trek or something like that like this is off the charts like why would you even want this how would you not want i mean human being teachers can actually tailor their teaching to each person more than a, you know they're just taking the the person out of it the, the human really the human it's like a cold sterile view of human human beings as human resources and it comes from these elites like skull and bones and these guys are just like oh we're gonna get you get ready for the workforce you lose that term like birth to tomb or what is it uh oh, to yeah. tomb. like we're yeah, gonna, yeah. We're gonna, we've got you figured out all the way to uh and that's really what's even more scary is that the education the public education system is being tailored for the corporate corporations benefit so you're gonna get the training that they want you're actually not going to get an education you're going to get training to be put in and work at freaking sorry google or microsoft or one of these tech companies just like a you know a robot yeah 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 and and you know you sort of uh you sort of put the idea out there it's like well sort of like what is the end game like what like how like you know this is you know it's we're at the very least, we're going to be losing something about our humanity uh, during the course of, of this whole, you know, ed tech uh, enterprise, right? I mean, what, whatever benefits they purport we might get from it, right? I mean, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a far stretch to suggest that, you know, what we know as the human condition is going to be radically different in a way that, right, we're going to lose, we're going to lose our humanity. Well, I mean, you know, they, there's a couple terms uh, that I use in the book, and ultimately, this I believe is has to be logically has to be the end game and that is the, the engineering of not just the engineering of ai to just to have robots and you know a, a social credit system but eventually for what's known as transhumanist or post-human engineering right because eventually you know and this is sort of what got me down the the the, the rabbit hole okay because as i'm working with that ibm watson and i don't anymore because you know i you know for reasons i'll express uh, but as I'm as I'm sort of working here, uh, I'm thinking like, well, wait a minute, like this thing is data mining what I do, and so every day that I go to work, this thing's getting smarter and it's getting more efficient, more effective. Eventually, right? The idea here is that it's going to be able to do what I do. In other words, it's going to replace me. Okay, and then so I start thinking, well, you know, a lot of times we think of like AI replacing the, the human workforce, and we usually think of like factory robots like oh they're just going to do like heavy lifting and stuff that nobody wants to do anyways except that when you're in the realm of education the, the algorithms are are evolving and being engineered to not just replace physical labor but intellectual labor so if you can if the ai can 
replace intellectual labor at a level where it can teach better than a human instructor, what's the point in teaching or learning at all, right? In other words, why, why use that AI now that it's smart enough to replace the teacher? Why use it to teach the student? Because it, could, it might as well just teach another robot. In other words, right, it's good. It will, it will make not just human, human labor, but human thought, human consciousness obsolete. So at this point, you have no other choice but to do what Elon Musk says. And he literally, he literally says, if you can't beat him, join him, right? When he talks about his neural link, right? And he says, well, we're basically already cyborgs because, right, we, we never go anywhere without our, our phones and half our lives is mediated through the phone. And the phone is too slow, right? It, it, he calls it a bandwidth problem. So basically, instead of having to use your thumbs and type and have all these apps, right, you sort of evolve from having the ubiquitous mobile devices to eventually having the wearables that I just described and then eventually have the implantables like the neural link. And then at that point, you, according to him, you merge with artificial intelligence. And a lot of the people that are pushing this uh, artificial intelligence evolution, you know, people like Ray Kurzweil, uh, they, they literally use language like they believe we'll become our own gods. Now, I, I really right. think they mean more that they'll become gods and, and we'll sort of be you know, part of this uh, peripheral right. hive mind. Right, who's controlling the technology, right? Like, okay, I got this uh, Neuralink from Elon Musk, great, but who's running the show back at, the, you know, headquarters? Right, I mean, right. You know, it, 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 and they all say it's all benign. Like, are you sure? Because I've looked at technology in history, and anytime there's technology, it's been used for both sometimes good and sometimes nefarious purposes. I mean, come on. Yeah, and, and this actually gets into, you know, sort of gets us back in some ways to skull and bones in terms of the occult dimensions of all of this, right? And that is that, uh, you know, so in the, in the Gnostic narrative, uh, they sort of invert the, uh, they invert the, the Genesis story, right? So basically, God, Jehovah is the villain and uh, the serpent Lucifer is the hero, right? The, the God was, uh, he was a jealous God and he, he, he imprisoned Adam and Eve in the garden, right? And it was the serpent who came up and uh, freed them from the prison with the fruit of the tree of knowledge, which, right, technology is is the apex expression of, right, the, the pinnacle of human knowledge, right? It's our, it is what is manifest they, for our deepest. They always, the, say, the cultists always say it's the tree of knowledge. It's not just the tree of knowledge. It's the, the tree knowledge of knowledge of good and evil. Correct. Right. But they always invert that. They leave out that extra phrase. That's correct. their view. So. Yeah, cor correct, correct. And and you see, but you see this sort of in uh, you know in all in a lot of the computer iconography, right? You see, uh, you see, uh, you know, the Apple symbol, right? Apple, right? right? For Apple computers, right? You you see, uh, you know, Kurzweil himself says we'll we'll be like gods. You've got uh, who's this guy here? You've all know a Harari Homo Deus, um, right? Which is you know basically means man god or god man. Uh, Google at Google, both Sergey Brin and uh, Larry Page had said they want Google to be the mind of God. Um, you know, and then various other, you know, computers often use, you know, sort of, uh, you know, is it, uh, oh, who's the guy? Ben Gertzel, right? His Hanson Robotics, right. right? His robot is Sophia, right? And that's the yeah. goddess of wisdom. And I believe right. that's also a goddess in the yeah. Gnostic paradigm. It's funded by yeah. Epstein. I, I wouldn't worry yeah. about it. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> <it's>, yeah. <laughs> right, right. And so it, what's, what's interesting is that, you know, so, right. So when people talk about becoming their own gods, uh, you know, it's, a you know, understanding the Gnostic roots, it's, it's Luciferian, right? All, all Luciferian, right? Yeah. And, and, and because of that, right, it's another, it's another reason I don't think I'm, uh, you know, out of my, uh, I, I don't think I'm speculating too much to suggest that they think they'll be gods and that we'll be like, you know, in the, in the external hive mind. Um, right. It's an issue of so human sovereignty, sovereignty and the human condition. Like you're adjusting what human beings were and is it positive or negative and, how much independence are you really going to have? We've lost tons of independence. I mean, I haven't done anything, but there's databases with all of my, knowledge, you know, information that I never assented to. Somebody, you know, in the government can pull up everything that I've ever done in my past. You know, I, I don't need, you know, it's like, uh, you know, was it some kind of Philip K. Dick book or something like that? We're there. So it can only get worse. Uh, yeah, and and like been... the, In a communist system, the, you know, the people aren't as sovereign. There, there's not that individualism it's collectivism and that's that strain is around today in the u.s and sadly i don't know why these people think that that's some kind of you know, 
ideal. It is. Yeah, I mean, and it goes back to the whole Hegelian thing, right? Because I mean, that, that's you know, at, at its core, Marx is is Hegelian, and and Hegel was his his was collective, right? He he literally said said that the state is God marching on. Right. right, and the state is for him the synthesis of you know the in in, in the Marxist paradigm, the state is the synthesis of you know eventually you know sort of the bourgeois and the proletariat you know the, through the clash that there comes the what he called the dictatorship of the proletariat, and that's it's event it's it was uh, eventually that was its end, right? It was determined that that's the way it was going to end, like yeah. that was their you know what do you call it paradise that was their eden really was it was uh, communism was going to take over the whole world because that was just the most scientifically logical event so and that didn't happen i mean there's variations of communism but um yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's i mean this book is important because we're entering a new phase of human existence that's never existed before what the advent is as moore's law keeps geometrically getting you know more and more dominant computing it's just people are going to be making all kinds of decisions um john do you have time for a few questions i think some people had a couple questions uh dr piper Piper asked what do you think about musk's proposed neuralink i mean we kind of discussed that yeah yeah i mean i you know i think let me i i I can expand i like this you know i mean I, i guess i sort of went into what i think about neuralink in particular uh, but I maybe I'll I'll talk about what I think of Musk a little more broadly, especially recently, and that is you know I think he's sort of being promoted as like the foil to uh, Bill Gates and and uh, who's the Amazon guy Bezos, right? I mean those guys most people sort of think of them as like super villains, right? And like Musk is like the cool billionaire, and you know he's he you know I mean he's gonna he's for free speech, and he I think he made a tweet recently that he wants more people instead of less, and. You know, but in the meantime, right, he's going to engineer uh, a neural link that's basically going to interface you with uh, with all this AI. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think there's anything good about it. I, I, I will say, you know, I had a friend, he passed away, you know, not too long before my book was published. And he he's uh, struggled with epilepsy. OK. And so, you know, I mean, if he was alive today and said, hey, John, I'm going to get a, uh, I'm going to get the neural link to regulate my. Uh, my my seizures, which by the way, they already have some some of those types of uh, neuro, neural implants that can regulate your, uh, your your epileptic seizures. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't think anybody would 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 argue that that's that you know somebody who has epilepsy shouldn't be allowed to do that. But uh, you know, as far as using it for something other than entirely therapeutic purposes voluntarily, uh, you know, I, I don't see anything good coming of that. I, I, it just it can only you know, further everything we've talked about during this podcast. And let's see, any other, any other questions, anybody? I guess somebody asked you about Huawei. I guess Huawei. Huawei. Yeah. Chinese uh, tech company. Yeah. Yeah. I I call it Huawei. Maybe it's Huawei. I always thought it's Huawei. I don't know. You're probably right. I don't don't know. Huawei's, I think they're trying to just get inroads into the United States. Yeah. So Huawei is, um, you know, I, I I don't see it as much different as any other big tech companies in the West. I mean, one of the things I could note is so Huawei obviously is intimately involved in the the infrastructure for the social credit system in China. But one thing that's interesting about the social credit system in China is that okay, it's run by Ant Financial, which is uh, an affiliate or a subsidiary of um, Alipay, and Alipay is part of Alibaba Group. Alibaba Group is funded by uh, Salesforce. Okay, which is Mark Benioff, who's a trustee at the World Economic Forum, and it's also financed by BlackRock. And the Focus One headband that I mentioned, it's it's engineered by a Chinese electronics company, but it's also uh, was developed with a, through a partnership with academics out of Harvard. And so what I'm what I'm pointing out here is that uh, basically all of the Chinese big tech uh, infrastructure and all their uh, big tech corporations. Right, they are financed by uh, by Western oligarchs uh, and are in partnership with them as well. And and I've recently written a few articles um, that sort of expand. You know, I'm continuing my research on this book, so I, I write articles all the time. Uh, you know, it's sort of expanding what what builds on the book. And I looked at some of the UNESCO partnerships that uh, popped up uh, in the wake of COVID, 
And one of them is the UNESCO Global Education Coalition. And in this Global Education Coalition, you have companies like Microsoft, Google, and also Huawei. All right. And so, I mean, like they, they, they're sort of, uh, you know, rubbing elbows on the, on the same sort of global councils through these global governance institutions such as UNESCO. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. And this sort Super of illustrates, dangerous. you know, the whole paradigm that Sutton pointed out, which is this, you know, depending on if you turn on Fox or CNN, right, it's either Russia's the bad guy or China's the bad guy, except that, right, at the end of the day, right, there's there's a lot more overlap in terms of, you know, international finance and multinational corporations across these so-called political divides than there is, you know, sort of competition uh, the way that the way that it's, it's projected in the media. Yeah, it's amazing. John, we're at the 60 minute mark. Great discussion. Thanks for coming on. Where's the best, you know, is there anything you'd like to add or uh, anything I missed before we wrap this up? No, no, I think that was good. I, I, I like that. We covered, we covered a lot. Yeah. And then where's the best place to get this book, School of World Order? I think it's currently sold out from Trying Day. So that's typically the best place to, to get it is directly from Chris Milligan, right? Instead of feeding Amazon. Um, but I, last I checked, I think I think it's sold out uh, at Chris's. I think he's having some supply chain issues. Um, I think you can still get a copy of it at Amazon. Um, so you know you can try either one. Uh, either one's cool with me. I mean, one of the one of the only good things about Amazon is that I get a sense of what it's doing. You know, it sort of lets gotcha. you know if it's selling. You know, but those are the those are the two best places that I can think of. And then the best place to reach out to you is your website, which is schoolworldorder.info right yes sir yes sir yeah and, and there's a link to the to the trying day there uh again you know the, my, my database is there all my articles are there most of my interviews I'm, I'm very slow at updating my website uh and you know if you just want to send me an email I'm, I'm always happy to interact with people and answer any questions I, you know if i take a day or two sometimes uh, you know i I, as I mentioned, I'm an adjunct, so I, I effectively I work three jobs in addition to to doing the book. Uh, and so, you know, if it takes me a little while, you know, please forgive me. But I, I always I never don't respond. I always get back to you. Right on. And thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Again, the author's name is John Kleizek. And the book title is School World Order, the Technocratic Globalization of Corporatized Education. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Stay there.